at the foundational root, our sexual energy is our, is our vital life force. It's a mirror of our life itself. By following the desire as a guide and not something we're trying to go away from, but as a true guide, that's when we begin to find joy. And that's what our being has wanted all along from the beginning. And we say that if we can do that with every aspect of our life, when death comes, we can enter it without a ripple. I'm Leanne. Welcome to Strippers and Sages. Nikesha Breeze is an interdisciplinary artist whose work seeks to engage the viewer in a relationship of the soul. She investigates the resilience of the Black and queer body in relationship to power, vulnerability, the sacred, and the ancestral. Her work is deeply ritual and process-based and invokes the irrepressible urgency of the human spirit. Originally from Portland, Oregon, Nikesha lives and works in the high desert of New Mexico. She is an American-born African diaspora descendant of the Mende people of Sierra Leone and Assyrian-American immigrants from Iran. In this conversation, Nikesha shares her personal experiences and insights on coming of age in Portland's queer rave scene, exploring Taoist sexology, engaging the invisible world through Qigong, decolonizing the creative process, and coming out to her family. So I came home to all 10 of my brothers and sisters and my mom and my stepdad and a counselor who is so, is so funny, but he's like, all right, so Nikesha's a pussy licker. <laughs> Let's talk about it. Nikesha, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. So happy to be here. It's been really beautiful knowing you, and I'm uh, excited to capture some of your wisdom mm. in this podcast. <laughs> so I'd love for you to just start by telling us a little bit about your upbringing and how how it may have influenced in shaping you into who you are today. Um, uh, yeah, there's a, a lot. My upbringing definitely um, has shaped me in many ways, um, possibly unexpected ways. The, um, I broke, I grew up with 10 brothers and sisters, um, all from my mom. Uh, she gave birth to all of us and raised us mostly on her own. She had seven different husbands and fathers. Um, and, but she was a single mom for periods of time, most of it with her, with all of us. So, uh, I grew up with a very tight knit, family, um, in pretty abject poverty ultimately, cause my mom was a waitress <laughs> and supporting 10 young children, um, was pretty difficult. And so, uh, I worked from, for myself from eight years old as a model, um, and as an actor and was the second income for my family throughout most of my life. Where were you in the, did you, I was the children. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was, I was right in the middle. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I grew up as a middle child of, of 10. And where, where did you live? We lived in Oregon, um, in the rural part of the Northwest. The town was called Sherwood, Oregon. It's about 45 minutes outside of Portland towards the coast. Mm. Tell us a little bit about your mom. My mom is one of the most powerful, strong-willed and intelligent people I've ever, ever met in my life. Uh, she has is has taught me everything that I know about resilience and about forgiveness and about surviving. Um, I think she's a saint (laughs) and I, and I'm going to look to canonize her at some point in this, this life. Um, I love my mom very much and yeah. Where is she now? She's in Portland, Oregon as well. Still she's raising, 
uh, two of her grandkids. My mom, as I said, had 10 children, but she has 25 or 28 grandchildren now and another five great-grandchildren, something like that. I need to recount all of the kids, <laughs> but she's, uh, yeah, she's still there raising grandkids and supporting her family. And we, in terms of your upbringing, is she... Assyrian? She's Assyrian. She okay. Yeah, she's Assyrian. Um, and her family, she was first generation born here um, from Iran. And was that culture present for you growing up at all? Um, not so much. I met my grandparents on my, my mom's parents when we were little. Um, we would go out and visit them. And it was, you know, wonderful to be around them. You know, they speak Aramaic. Mm -hmm. So the language was really beautiful to hear. And, uh, but my mom left home when she was 17 and was on the road raising kids most of the time. So she never carried the language forward and didn't carry the, a lot of the cultural pieces forward, mm -hmm. um, along her own line. So it was really just visiting them sometimes. Mm -hmm. So you were modeling and you were acting, give, give us a sort of snapshot of Nikesha as a kid. Uh, I was modeling and acting sometimes up to four or five days a week, three to five days a week. So I was actually missing quite a bit of school most mm -hmm. of the time um, for doing that. I I was in every single week's print ads, you know, all of them that you would see in all of the newspapers. I did runway shows. I did, you know, motion pictures full, like feature length films and they were in film festivals, commercials, um, you know, for every big company you can imagine. Wow. From, yeah, eight to 16. Um, all of my first experiences around puberty happened in the dressing room with dressers. You know, like my breasts emerging, they were being taped down by <laughs> my dressers. And certain periods later, I didn't become a big model because I never grew tall enough. I was a couple inches too short. So my modeling career ended pretty quick as soon as I grew out of the junior sizes. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, then it became more acting. Mm. And was that something that you sought out or that your mother sort of signed you up for? Or how did you get into it? It was something that I, we came across some, at one point, some type of fair, there was a booth, you know, and I got really excited about it and wanted to, to go and, you know, try out for this agency. Um, and I got a, you know, got an agent when I was eight. And so the, the it was brand new for all of us. We were also doing beauty pageants at the time, um, particularly scholarship pageants um, mm -hmm. to help support us through school. Um, and so there was, I mean, it was a lot of hustling. Mm -hmm. My mom was hustling <laughs> really with all of us, like finding cool things that we could do, but also things that could help support the family, like college scholarships and modeling money, which I said was used as a second mm -hmm. income for the family. I made sometimes more money than my mom mm -hmm. doing that type of work. And so we just, we did it. And then after I got into it, you know, was successful, then my younger brothers and sisters did it as well. So there was four of us wow. that were all professional models and actors uh, throughout our youth. And my mom eventually quit waiting tables and became a talent agent at one point because we were so immersed in that world. And she had a children's and teens talent agency. So I ended up working for her for a few years, helping run the, the talent agency as well. Oh, and were you close with your siblings growing up? Yeah, we were mm -hmm. all close and we're all still really close, which mm -hmm. is rare. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so how did you end up in New Mexico? Uh, when I was 18 or barely 18, 
I decided I was giving up on everything. I quit all of the modeling, all the acting and wanted to take my own life in my own hands. And so I sold everything that I had had at that point, um, which wasn't very much and had a bike and a backpack and, uh, ended up, yeah, moving with a friend to Boulder, Colorado, um, really randomly and just showed up trying to make it happen in a new place as a big challenge. And then, uh, in that same year I decided I wanted to, it was 99. I wanted to travel down and, and see what was up with the Southwest. And as soon as I found Taos, I fell in love with mm-hmm. it and didn't look back. I decided to move there that same year. What about it seduced you? That it felt like it was a completely other world. I was deeply intrigued by the homes made of mud and the cultural diversity and the light and the endlessness of the sky and everything about it. (laughs) Growing up in Oregon where it was wet most of the time and gray most of the time was, you know, definitely a big change to come to the desert, you know, and the high desert is different. It's not, you know, dry. There's still a lot of water, but it was just perfect for me. Yeah. Well, while we're on your childhood um, and you you speak about sort of coming of age while you're in these contexts, where did you first learn about sex? How was it introduced into your psyche as something that existed? Was it something that you read about? Did someone tell you in a dressing room? Did your mother have a conversation with you? Yeah. Nobody in my family, my mom, my brothers, sisters, none of, nobody ever talked about sex. No one ever talked about anything like that. There was no talk about sex, no talk about our periods. Like everything was basically just kind of happening on your own, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Um, I came out as gay when I was 14. Um, my first sexual experiences were much younger. Um, mostly like kissing my friends, you know, girls and boys, mm-hmm. um, and just playing around with that type of feeling. I remember chasing, you know, a boy at one point and a girl at another point, um, and the school play yard. There was one girl that I remember, uh, I won't say her name, but she was like one of my dear friends when I grew up and she, I helped her down from this like big metal elephant at the zoo, like off the thing. And she slid down my body and mm-hmm. I had like the first like pulse through my body of sexual energy. Like mm-hmm. I felt my sex for the first time, like become alive. And I remember like the imprint of that for my whole life. It was the first time I actually felt my sex. I think I was nine. Wow. Um, and yeah, it was this woman that I had a crush on then for the rest of my life. <laughs> Although she never would have known. Um, but yeah, when I was 14, I came out as gay mm-hmm. and I began to, uh, to really express that. And my older, one of my friends who was 16, one of my mom's friends, kids mm-hmm. who we grew up with also came out in the same year. And so both of us were really excited about us being gay. He was, you know, super excited. And so was I, and, and he just got a car. And so he would drive us every single weekend to Portland, to the city, which is about 45 minutes away to this underage gay dance club called the city. You can get in when you were 14, it was 14 to 20. Um, and it was the most amazing place I've ever been to this day as a queer person, I can't even believe that that existed. I'm like, was that real? It was this three story dance, like techno dance on one floor, 
like goth, you know, dance music on another and hip hop on another floor, all queer, all kids, drug free, alcohol free. I mean, drug free is questionable because there's definitely <laughs> a lot of stuff going on in those bathrooms, but it was supposed to be drug free. Uh, but we had drag shows, um, huge performances. And that was where I really started to dig into sex and sexuality mm-hmm. and sexual bodies, particularly learning from the drag queens. Mm-hmm. Say more about that. What does that, mean? Um, that was sort of the center for me of like where I found my camaraderie was working with, with these um, in that, yeah, these drag queens who were exploring their, their gendered bodies and their sexual mm-hmm. bodies in this way, um, at that time, so young, you know, 14 to 18, you know, what it meant to, um, yeah, to embody, embody their gender and through that express their sexuality, mm-hmm. you know, this freedom of being a sexual body, of allowing a sexual body to be out in the world and be shown. And so for me, it was this place of just getting inspired around, uh, I guess, being, being so proud of and, and yeah, embodied in, you know, a sexual personality. Mm-hmm. Um, even though a lot for the drag queens, it was, there's a show around it. Um, still for me, it was inspiring. I was really closeted in that, those particular ways of like feeling as a living, pulsing sexual body in the world. And those young women really, really showed me what it was like to be unafraid in that way. Mm. And that, that's when you're like 14. That was when I was 14. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so take us through sort of what your trajectory was from that point in terms of your sexual awakening or um, exploration. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I began uh, at that time trying to understand what even my sexual desires were, like who and what I, who I was into. Um, and I realized pretty quickly that I, I was, I mean, and it's so funny now there's all these words and I, I guess I'm pansexual or something. Like I really was very much interested in all kinds of bodies, mm-hmm. you know, I, um, and, and that became really apparent at that time because I had the opportunity to kind of explore myself you know, feeling into my sexual body with many different people. I mean, I wasn't precocious in that way, you know, really, mm-hmm. um, and I, not having sex, but just feeling what attraction was like and what, you know, the, the movements towards intimacy or making out, mm-hmm. you know, I had a girlfriend once that she was super, super butch in that time, you know, very, I don't know, she had this quality that was so overly masculine, masculine that I realized that I was like, I don't, I don't know if I like that. <laughs> and I was like, she was like with boxer shorts and kind of farting all of the time. I don't know. There was this like quality to her that I was like, I don't know if I like that. And then I was, then I was like started being with these really super, super femmy girls. And then I didn't quite fit there either. And it was all these different trying out, like, where is my both sexual attraction falling and where is my gender attraction falling? Where is my gender attraction falling in my own body? Mm-hmm. I was going through huge changes as to how I was presenting myself in the world as well as like what I was drawing towards me. And was your family supportive around that exploration? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, they were sort of ignorant of it uh-huh. intentionally for a while um, and sort of thought it was more phase. I moved out when I was 15 from my house. Um, and I remember being called called home one time there and there was a big like intervention because 
I don't know, I'd been out wild on the dance rave scene, queer scene, and wasn't checking in and hadn't really lived at home for a bit. And so they were all worried about me. Mm -hmm. So I came home to all 10 of my brothers and sisters and my mom and my stepdad and a counselor all sitting around a huge table, like waiting for me. It was like the intervention. And we all sat down. I didn't know what was going on. And the counselor who is so so funny, but he's like, all right, so Nikisha's a pussy licker. Let's talk about it. No. <laughs> Everyone was like, ah, oh, jaws dropped. I mean, so do, do, did you find that tactful? I, like, I think at the time, I mean, I think I was just shocked. I laughed at what he said it because it was so funny. Yeah. It like really broke the ice okay. and the silence of the whole thing. Um, you know, so I laughed and I think a couple other people, brothers and sisters laughed and my mom was very like, Oh God. And you know, everybody, but, um, but it did help break the ice and, you know, we talked, you know, and I just let people know this is who I am and what I am. And, and they, you know, in the end were supportive. It ended up being mostly them worried about my health and my well-being and mm-hmm. what I was doing and, you know, just keeping me safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and, from that point on, there was never any need to go further. My my family's always been supportive. Of no more choices. interventions. No more interventions. I was okay. Where where did you go to live? When um, you moved out. When I moved out, I just crashed on people's floors and oh. couches and stayed with my brother a little, and I just didn't want to be living in the home at that time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of pussy licking, <laughs> you know, I'm always curious, like <laughs> how we learn these things because they're so little um, guidance. Right. And uh, I'm curious just about w- to the extent that you'd like to share about your early pussy looking experiences, <laughs> um, receiving and giving and just what, you know, was that like a fearful immersion for you or introduction or um, did you was it in a safe, supportive environment? Like what was the sort of learning curve there? Um, with with women, it was. Always. um and I always felt really safe with women. And in the very, very beginning, like my first experiences, just kissing or getting close, you know, was so young. Um, you know, I'm trying to remember who was my actual first, first kiss. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, yeah, like, I mean, a lot of the first people I ever kissed were straight girls. Mm-hmm. Like, because I grew up in a very small town and it was sort of like me seducing my girlfriends like at sleepovers basically I was this like young (laughs) seductress sleeping and seducing my girlfriends and um and that obviously didn't wasn't really fulfilling because it was always kind of secret taboo and not talked about and eventually my girlfriends kind of stopped wanting to hang out with me because it made them feel awkward and because they weren't gay right it wasn't reciprocated it wasn't really reciprocated in the same way um and so I, the reciprocal relationships for me with women didn't happen until a little bit later, until I was more in my like 15, mm-hmm. you know, 16. And, um, and as I said, it was really all, you know, just exciting and mm-hmm. fun and safe and, and a lot of just making out and feeling into our bodies. And um, we were all young in that time. So it didn't feel like there was many strange power dynamics in those relationships that I was having. Um, what became strange or hard for me was when I started to try and mess around with men. 
always very challenging. <laughs> that became really challenging and became really awkward and made me feel really kind of gross in different ways. And, but I kept pushing because I would become attracted to men. Um, a lot of them, it was more of an intellectual attraction that I would feel or move into. And that made me think it was sexual, mm -hmm. but often then the sexual feelings would not, I wouldn't feel good mm -hmm. or feel right. What about it made you feel that way? Um, I, right. I think that the first men that I was, um, with maybe they were young too, but there was a lot of sort of tentative qualities where like they didn't feel like it felt just so othered. Mm -hmm. Whereas when I was with women, I felt really like we were the same and just playing around and it was just super playful mm -hmm. and innocent and a quality of just, of this mutuality and sharing. Whereas with, with men, there was that power dynamic, you know, the men felt like they had to do something mm. to please me. And I felt like I had to do something to please them, but I didn't know what and how their bodies really worked. And, and there was a lot of barriers of the other mm -hmm. that would come up and be, and with that, even a bit of hesitation, mm -hmm. I, my body would shut down. Mm -hmm. And so that then when I would be touched, it would feel like I was being like molested. Mm. Even when it was somebody who really loved me or was caring for me, I would still feel like they didn't, like it was an other touching my body. Right. And, um, and so m almost every single time I tried to have a relationship with men, they would fizzle out and become non-sexual. Mm -hmm. And then they would just be sort of fun, friend, good friendships. And even in relationship, I'd try to have these relationships, but we wouldn't have sex anymore. Mm -hmm. And then did that transform at some point for you in terms of taking male lovers and it not feeling as othered or no it never dynamic, really changed. really mm -hmm. it didn't actually I mean it, it really it didn't I continued on in my life with a lot of female lovers mm -hmm. and then in my 20s um I I moved to a small town I moved to Taos mm -hmm. and there were no gay people <laughs> and no gay community and and I was really isolated by myself and I ended up kind of dating some men again and always still felt awkward and still was not quite right. And, um, and then the first, then I, yeah, I met this one man and we were together for a couple of weeks and then I got pregnant mm. <laughs> and that was kind of a whole shift of my entire life. Wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, and you have two sons right now. I have right? two sons. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, keeping in mind, I mean, now you are raising the boys, the teenage boys. Uh, do you talk to them about sex? And I do. I mean, my oldest, we've had good conversations. My youngest isn't quite there yet. Right. He's still just figuring out his own body, mm -hmm. and I'm not quite sure where or his attraction lies yet. He hasn't emerged with any of those thoughts or feelings outwardly to me around it. He's pretty shy. My, um, my oldest, however, is, um, really proactively communicative about his experiences, um, with women and with, um, or girls trying to date girls, trying to feel it. And, you know, we had a long talk about his sexual body when he was first going through puberty mm. and about like what, he might expect to come to happen in his body and talked about masturbation and how it was totally good and healthy and important. And mm -hmm. it's like, that's your chance to like train your body into what you like. And, mm. 
you know, so it was kind of at the very beginning, an embarrassing conversation. And then it wasn't. And, and then, so, yeah, I was going to say like, how did, was he like, mom, or he how, a little how like, did you uh, finesse that conversation? <laughs> I, I just, re- we were real with each other. Mm-hmm. I was like, let's do this. Like, here's the talk. Let's talk the talk. Mm-hmm. I know you're going to be approaching these things and your body's changing. And, you know, I would just want you to know right away. Cause a lot of people don't have this conversation with their kids, right. like that. It's really good mm-hmm. and important to explore yourself, mm-hmm. you know, and if you're going to ever be able to be good and able to show up for any relationship that you choose to have, you need to have had this chance to have a relationship with yourself. Mm-hmm. So this is your opportunity. And so it was just like a, one of those real, real talks, you know, about it. And, you know, and then there's more details about his sexual body that I said, you know, his father could talk to him about, you know, and that I would leave in reserve space, obviously, mm-hmm. for his dad to have his own conversation around those things. But on my side as his mother, I just wanted to make sure he he knew in his gut how important and how good it was for him to not be ashamed right. ever right. of of him exploring and being with his body and how that makes him reliable to be able to actually be with a woman when that time arises. Mm-hmm. You know, and did have has there been conversation also about that about how to show up in in partnership and lovemaking or? Yeah, well, he's not quite, and I don't know. You know, of course, this is all probably speculative. <laughs> speculative. <laughs> he hasn't told me now, like exactly where he's gone yet. Mm-hmm. You know, with with girls. Yeah. Um. So I don't know if he's lost his virginity. I don't think he has. <laughs> so we're still on the edge on that conversation. Yeah, it's always really interesting. Like. Uh, because there's really so little protocol for how to have these conversations um, intelligently, and most parents do shy away from it. I remember I was uh, traveling, my, it was like around Christmas, my flight got canceled in Argentina, and I was with this family, and they were just this very unique, also from Portland, actually, beautiful family that in the course of hours of having this layover and speaking at one point, um, they were just very open about sex, I learned. And they were telling me about how, like, the older brother put together a sort of <laughs> essentially a lose your virginity kit for his sister, <laughs> but like a beautiful offering of how to be safe. And like, I don't, I don't know what was in it. Um, but, and then they both spoke to their parents at one point about, you know, looks like you guys are having some distance in your marriage. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> which maybe wow. some people would be like, this is a lot. Right. But it's, it's, there's this stigma that separates family members around yeah. this thing when in fact it's like the most intimate and at the same time universal, um, thing. Right. So, uh, it's interesting to just hear both about your upbringing and now you as a parent, how to approach these conversations and, yeah what would it look like for us to have really honest and intimate and probing discussions with our children that like give some guidance and support in their exploration. Mm -hmm. Sounds like you're doing a good job. Yeah. The best it can. And my son had a, one of his best friends, a girl got pregnant this year and just had their baby. Wow. And with another one of his friends, you know, they're all 15 and 16. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I felt really, really proud of my son because he called me as soon as she he found out from her mm-hmm. and she hadn't even told her mom yet. He like came to me and was like, mom, what should I do? 
as a friend, as a friend mm-hmm. for my friend. And like, what can I do to help her? She hasn't told anybody. Mm-hmm. She just found this out, you know? And I was like, have her come talk to me. Mm-hmm. That's what you, sh- you can do. You can, can reach out to somebody for some help. And, you know, and so he did and she ha- came and talked to me and it was a really important and great conversation and, you know, all these different things. And it, but it was super sobering for my son mm. because it was the first, like so close to home, what that could look like. And, right. you know, so I, I think that that's also important is when things aren't hidden away and like the realities of life and the consequences of sex, you know, sometimes, yeah, show right. themselves. Right. That's been good. Mm. Um, well, it's great that you were able to show up for that girl in that way. So going back to your own journey, um, so you lived in Taos or you were living in Taos, you got pregnant, you had your first son. Um, we left off in terms of your own, um, sexual journey, I guess around that time dating men, where did it go from there and how has your own, like, as you've matured, what is it like to, how has your relationship with your own eroticism matured over the years and what have been the influences in that? Um, I got pretty shocked in my sexuality, you know, from young, you know, I was, as I said, super explorative and interested in, in the whole queer world, you know, and, um, had some pretty intense experiences when I was young with some sexual, uh, spaces that were not safe and, you know, things like that did come up for me. Um, and, um, And so those scars and that place was definitely in my body as I was aging and moving into this older, this other space in my twenties. Um, after I got pregnant, I didn't stay with that man. I was only with him for a couple weeks, but we decided to co-parent through the birth and, and, um, and we've co-parented his, my son's whole life. Um, I had another relationship with another man in that time while I was pregnant, um, before I gave birth and we ended up having a long-term relationship, but it ended up being also pretty much non-sexual. Mm. Um, but we stayed together because I had a baby mm-hmm. in the time and he was really helping us with support. And then it ended up becoming abusive, which was really intense. And then that ended, I had another child by that same man, but a couple months after the birth, our relationship ended. Um, so I raised both my kids by myself with co-parenting you know, scheduling, but, um, my sexual life was definitely seriously damaged in that process. Those men, the two kids, the whole thing, I was super closed and felt like, yeah, I had no sexual desire. My body was cold and sort of frigid. I didn't really men or women like have anybody in my life that I wanted to touch me. And I was sort of moved into a asexual and basically celibate type of life. Um, and then I later, as my kids were a little older, you know, four or five years old, I started to date again, um, and dating some women and, and that was beautiful. Also like felt better, but also still slightly scarred Mm -hmm. and sexually couldn't open up. And I just thought I was sort of broken in a sense in my body sexually. Um, And around that time, I ended up um, finding Mocha Dao, which was a really powerful Taoist embodied practice that 
incorporated my own long history, which we didn't talk about, of studying, you know, philosophical Taoism. Mm. Uh, you know, finding a, an embodied Taoist practice was huge, and it had an entire component that was based on the sort of Taoist approach to sexual healing and cultivation and, um, yeah, generation in the body. And so that uh, was really profound in introducing sort of a new way of feeling into and looking into what one, my sexual body is, what sexual trauma is, what and how, you know, I could begin to soften. And in that same process, I also was finding myself in a, in a new relationship that I could begin to work some of those feelings out with. Mm. Tell us a little, yeah, about your first philosophical um, relationship to Taoism. Uh, I started to study and learn about Taoism when I was eight years old. So oh. way back, my godmother died, my mom's best friend. Mm. Um, and, you know, as I said, we, we were really poor, grew up in the middle of nowhere in like a two bedroom house, all 10 brothers and sisters sleeping in basically one room. And, uh, and then my godmother died and my mom adopted her two children. So then we had two more brothers and sisters that moved in with us. Wow. Um, but we also inherited my godmother's books. Um, and in her library, she had an entire section um, of books that were all spiritual focused books. There was um, this book by Alan Watts called Dal the Watercourse Way. Mm -hmm. It's a small book that I pulled off the shelf. And I was a really precocious, super prodigy reader at that time and also very isolated in my crazy, crazy family. And so I ended up becoming just a little recluse reader reading these very esoteric books. <laughs> so I had Dal the Watercourse Way, I had a book by Mantak Chia mm -hmm. about cultivating sexual energy. Um, I had another book on psychic powers that I really liked. <laughs> and um, Be Here Now by Ram Dass. Mm -hmm. And that became like my first library of yeah, books. Yeah, classic eight-year-old library. Totally. Yeah, it, it was totally like, it was so good. I was saying, I remembered like when I finally finished the Alan Watts book, I was like sitting in this tent at the beach at my family's like family beach trip. And I was in the tent with these little meditation balls and like in my head and just soaking up all of this knowledge and felt like I had like won the lottery because I f knew so much more than anybody else in my family about like the way of life. Wow. And, um, but yeah, so that was the beginning. And then I became an adamant and pretty f like voracious, uh, scholar in Taoist philosophy. What spoke to you about the, that philosophy at that time? It was so easy to understand for mm -hmm. me, uh, the, in that the simplest thing, it, it was all nature that I could look to nature itself for all of the wisdom. Mm -hmm. I didn't need to believe any made up stories about people like gods in other realms or, you know, all of these. Yeah. I mean, every single religion has this whole story line that you have to sort of follow to be able to understand the knowledge. And as an eight year old, it got too complex for me. I didn't get it. And even Hinduism was cool, but it was just, it felt like a cartoon, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? And I mean, although now I, you know, I embrace, I, you know, I have a deep relationship to so many different religious concepts, but at that time, Taoism was the only thing that made 
total sense because I didn't have to do anything. I didn't have to think about anything other than nature and its relationship and me getting sensitive to that relationship and mm. that I was already okay. Like I was already in the Tao. Mm. I didn't have to do anything to get there. I didn't have to do anything to get to God. I was it. Mm. I just had to get more sensitive so that I could navigate it better. Mm. Um, and was there a spiritual or religious upbringing that you had? Was your family? Okay. No, they weren't. No, my parents were marijuana farmers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that is a religion, of its own. which was a religion on its own. Mm -hmm. Often, often a very direct <laughs> route to point. spirit. <laughs> um, okay, so you, so you had this all, this philosophical knowledge, but hadn't been exposed to qigong or a physical embodiment. No, of it yet. not really. I mean, when I was tw in my twenties, when I'd moved to Taos, um, I. At one point, again, I, as I said, I never drove a car until I was 24. I just had a bike. And I lived in a little tent on this property that I was helping caretake, doing cleaning and caring for this big uh, dojo. Mm -hmm. And at the dojo, the, the person who owned it would teach Qigong and Bagua classes. So I started to study a little bit of Bagua and Qigong in the dojo in my 20s. So I got a touch of it. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't a fully embodied philosophy that I could, that I knew or that he was really teaching. It was really the physical forms and sort of the martial practice that was interesting at that time. But um, it didn't sink all the way through to a, a fully embodied practice philosophy. Mm -hmm. So when I encountered Mogadal, uh, my life changed and it was really powerful mm -hmm. for me to be able to have physical movements that accompanied the philosophies in my body. Did you immediately feel a sort of physical connection to the ideology? So, right, in like starting to practice with these forms, was that something that right away you were like, oh, yes, this is this is Taoism in an action? Or was there? It was right away. Really? Yeah. I mean, the way that um, Zhen, the master teacher of the lineage, taught, you know, was so embedded with the philosophical understanding that I knew so well mm -hmm. that as, you know, at the time Jen was talking about it and, and doing the movements, it all made sense. Mm -hmm. It just felt like a lock and key. Mm. I'd love for you to talk about Qigong, like as though you're telling it to someone who has never experienced it or done it. Like, how do you think about what we're doing when we practice? Um, Qigong is ultimately, it's becoming sensitive to all of the energy that exists already mm -hmm. in, in the entire universe, right? Everything has a sense of life force. Our body is made through life force, you know, the force of our, the egg and the, and the sperm, the energy that creates the growing in the trees. I mean, everything that, it, that has a desire to be, like that quality of life is is qi ultimately. And so qigong is the working of qi, literally and transliterated. Um, and so for me, qigong is a way of creating these structural or architectural forms with the physical body that um, invite qi to flow. Mm. So it's as if we make a shape with our body and then through that allowance, then the chi floods it, right? The life force that's already existent in the air itself mm. floods into the body. And, and, it's, and it's definitely something that comes from like becoming more sensitive to it. 
-hmm. We tend to be in our regular lives, like really numb most people to what's going on, like outside of our bodies and, and even in our bodies, like people just kind of go on this auto mode and aren't paying attention to the small, to, to things that are happening other than their basic needs. And so Qigong is a process of slowing down, becoming more aware of everything around you, being more sensitive, and then being able to harness that energy that we become aware of. Mm. And so it's sort of a magic trick. <laughs> That's how it feels to me. <laughs> I mean, when I started, it was just, I was like, okay, so I'm moving my hands in this way and somehow affecting my spleen. Like, how is it working? Mm, mm -hmm. And, you know, I know that that very inquiry speaks to, like, my own colonized, like, scientific reductionist brain that's like, what is the actual <laughs> mechanism? But I still, like, want to understand what is the mechanism? Like, how are we, how are we um, harnessing and also um, working with our organs when we, when we take these somatic architectures it's they it can be broken down in really scientific ways you know there's that's the beauty of it is that we you can actually talk about mm -hmm. well okay you know literally moving my arms or my legs in this way or breathing in this way is creating an influx of blood flowing through these particular parts of the body which you know blood is a is carries a particular form of energy in the body mm -hmm. you know and it's how our body survives is like is through the qualities and the quantities of our blood mm -hmm. so if we follow the blood around the body then we can begin to have sort of a gross understanding of how chi is flowing through the body um but there's there is something sort of beyond that too mm -hmm. right so that the blood flow, the movements are, of course, moving physical blood. They're also, you know, as you focus your mind or your intentionality. And in Mogadao particularly, it's all of the movements are embedded with uh, mythopoetics, mm -hmm. this relationship to language and breath and the quality of language as a sort of a guide and a rudder for the chi, mm -hmm. you know, because it does work just moving without any words, but it's harder because the mind has a tendency to wander also. And so when we can harness the mind and not only just focus it on the breath, but focus it on the breath and then allow it psycho-spiritually or mythopoetically to to move into the different qualities of the organ systems that we're working on, you know, that's where it begins to really work mm -hmm. because we're psychologic, kind of psychologizing, what's that mm -hmm. word? Psychologizing the, the, the movements mm -hmm. while the movements are happening. So there's this place where the mind, the body and the breath are all working together towards the same goal mm -hmm. of moving the energy. Beautiful. So there's a concert. Mm. Um, and do you think about it as like, and again, going into how moving outside of the body then infect, affects the internal organs. Is that about ele electromagnetic field? Is that, how, how is that relationship formed? I think with Qigong, it's important, and with Chinese medicine in general, mm -hmm. it's important to look at the organs not as the physical, fleshy mm. thing in our body. You mm -hmm. know, it's not just a stomach or a kidney, you know, these little bags of water. It's in, in Chinese medicine, the organs are looked at as a whole system that is n inseparable from the, the physical form 
from the psychology and from the emotional form. So Chinese medicine doesn't look at um, the body as one thing. Mm -hmm. um, so when we talk about the spleen, or let's talk about an organ people know more <laughs> readily. Like we talk about the kidney, which is great. Um, the kidney is the kidney itself, the wet organ that gives birth to the testes and the ovaries and, over, over, ovaries and all of the fluids of the body. But it's also this in Chinese medicine on the psychology side, the kidney is responsible for this whole host of our relationships to surrender, to forgiveness, to um you know, the thonic or the chaotic unconscious spaces, as well as life and birth and death. I mean, the kidneys are really rich mm -hmm. in the psychology, mm -hmm. you know, and then as well, the emotions of the kidneys themselves. The, the Chinese medicine believes that the kidneys are more than just that organ, but they're actually a whole kind of thinking conscious feeling part of the body. We say the kidneys or Chinese medicine says the kidneys, you know, um, are, have a tendency towards fear, right? And, you know, don't like loud music or obnoxious people. <laughs> you know, like there's I'm a, a kidney. <laughs> I'm a kidney. We all are kidneys. But, you know, so we when you talk about an organ, it has to already be understood, sort of extrapolated out of its physical into its psychology and its emotion as one thing. And so that in that way, when we're moving the body in a particular way. We're one moving blood through the, bo bo through the body particularly that is nourishing or benefiting the organ, the physical organ. You know, particular movements will rock the hips back and forth or twist the actual kidney and just kind of squish it and stimulate it mm -hmm. physically. But at the same time with the words that you're saying, the psychology that you're saying, you're going into another layer of what the kidney is. Mm -hmm. And then the emotions that you're allowing to flow through from the mythopoetic responses are another layer of what the kidney is. Mm -hmm. So any one of them will be helping. Beautiful. It's really helpful <laughs> for my understanding. Sorry, went on. No, no, please. Yeah. I've, uh, I mean, I've, as you know, been a Mogadab practitioner for almost a year now, but it's still something that I, you know, I want to wrestle with understanding actually yeah. what, what I'm doing yeah. and what we're doing. Um, so you found Mogadab and, and this sort of, that contributed to an opening for you. It an erotic did. opening. Yeah. So how does everything that we're talking about then start to relate to our sexual energy? Um, our sexual bodies are ultimately, you know, related to all of these, all of the organs in the body, you know, our sexual energy is in every single one of them because at the foundational root, our sexual energy is our, is our vital life force. It's a mirror of our life itself. Right. And so every organ has to be a part of that concert. And, but in particular, the kidneys, you know, in Chinese medicine and in Mogadao particularly are, um, are the home of our sexual energy in the body. Um, the, there's an essence that we speak of called Jing uh, that is uh, prevalent in, and I'm prevalent, but is, is infused in all of the fluids of the body. You know, again, the kidneys provide physically the fluids, both the quantity and the quality of fluid as it flows through the body in the blood, in the saliva, in the sexual, you know, fluids, in the tears, in the sweat. All of these fluids carry um, the essence of the kidney. And that essence of the kidney is the jing. The jing is understood as the first 
energy, the primordial energy that comes into our body at birth. So there's a sort of weight to it. They even say at death, the body, you know, has this sort of two and a half pounds of, of chi, <laughs> you know, in the body that leave the body sort of unexpectedly when the body dies. Um, and that's very specific. It is. It's interesting. Yeah. No, like in some, in the deep death studies, that's one of the things that it's like this unknown reality that when a body dies, there's this disappearance of a very particular amount of weight that can't be accounted for in the loss of water or the loss of, you know, muscle tone or, you know, anything. It's like the body weighs one thing. And then after the death, this two and a half pounds disappear. Um, and so that is related. We understand also to that, to that Jing, that primordial, you know, energy in the body that has an actual physical form. Um, the Jing in Chinese medicine, and this is our sexual, you know, really about our sexual energy, um, is incredibly profound because it relates to our, our whole, um, in, in, in the Mogadao understanding, it's really our whole destiny, our whole purpose or reason for being. Um, there's a really beautiful way that I love talking about it or explaining Jing. Um, that's like a Jing kind of cycle of life thing. And, and, you know, we begin with Jing in the body as the initial sexual life force that comes from the moment of sex of our, of our, you know, inception, you know, all of us come from sex <laughs> of some form, you know, even if we're, you know, born from, uh, you know, uh, artificial insemination, there's still emerging that happens of egg and ovum that create life. Um, so that moment of merging creates the foundation of Jing in the body. The Jing is, is interlaced in every single code and in, as a code in it, the destiny of our life. We're actually imprinted with the, the perfect harmony of our being from the very beginning. And what we say is that that is flowing through the Jing and it's constantly communicating to us. Right? It's, it shows up in the way, and we, you know, science will talk about it like pheromones or you know, things like that, but it shows up literally in the fluid. Right? So the way that we smell, the way that our sexual fluids or our, our mouths taste, the ways that we register somebody else's taste or smell and it as attractive or not, that's all the Jing talking. And so the Jing is responsible ultimately for guiding us towards our own per perfect harmony. Right? And so the practice is learning how to really listen to the Jing, which means listening to our desire. So it's really opposite of many religious and spiritual traditions that say to go against desire, that desire is the root of suffering, that desire, you know, creates a sense of grasping. There's this clinging desire, which is true. Clinging desire is unhealthy, right? We're looking at something not clinging, something that is much more, more like listening, you know, where it's, you know, not trying to reach outside of, of a truth, but to embrace deeply a truth. And so that means that whatever desires arise in our body, if we understand them as being pure, even when they're the most strange or, you know, kink or, you know, things that nobody would even think they'd understand, but they really come up in us and we can trust that, like that, that quality of Jing is essential. It's a roadmap to our harmony. And in the very beginning of us learning about Jing and learning about our desires, often we're kind of 
desiring everything. Like even like when I was a girl or, you know, being like, oh, maybe that, maybe this, maybe this. And that's really important as our desires come up for us to actually go with them and to listen to them. And then to be honest enough to know when it's not right, to actually taste the kiss and be like, mm, not right. And when we can actually get that sensitive to be able to, to feel into when the jing is correct, then what happens is, is we begin to narrow. We begin to, at one point we're like, yes, we're going to eat all of the candy. We're going to make out with all the girls and all the boys. And then at a certain point we're like, okay, maybe just some of the girls. <laughs> None of the boys. <laughs> uh, you know. And then sometimes it like comes all the way down where we begin narrowing down, narrowing down. And, and this happens for a lot of us as we get older and we think, oh, we're just becoming wiser. The truth is, is that we're becoming more, hopefully, more refined towards our truth, towards our jing, towards what is actually feeding us. And that process of finding the thing, the one, the kind of kink that we're into by following the desire as a guide and not something we're trying to go away from, but as a true guide, that ultimately harmonizes our entire body. We begin to align with our true destinies, you know, and we begin to feel more joy. When you're living in a life where you're actually joyfully in line or aligned with all of your desires, and everything that you has refined down to exactly that kind of kiss and only that kind, that's when we begin to find joy. And that's what our being has wanted all along from the beginning. And we say that, that if we can do that with every aspect of our life, when death comes, we can enter it without a ripple. We slide back into the Tao, into all that is in a sense of harmony with all that is. There's a seamlessness to that. And then we're able to refund back into the greater body, you know, better than when we started. So we're all on this journey. And in this work, it's the journey of Jing. And so all of our sex, all of it is about harmonizing ourselves to our most clear and refined truth. It's so personal, not moral. There's no outside thing that's going to say, this is what's right for you. And that's the beauty of it. It's ultimately completely amoral, hmm. totally specific, <laughs> you know, and individually harmonizing. Well, it's really profound and beautifully said. Thank you. Um, so how at this time did your alignment with this or your exploration of this work attune you to your destiny? What, what changes happened in your life around that time when you started to do these practices? Um, well, I was... I began to, to really become more sensitive to what it was that I was wanting and looking for, um, both physically, is the physical practice, both you know, psychologically, emotionally, and mentally, as far as the, the rigors of the study. Um, all of this felt really aligned, but it also opened me up to um, being ready to to move into relationship also again. And in that time, I, um, I fell in love with a man, which was super surprising to me because I'd sort of vowed never to be with men again. But through that process of really kind of understanding my desire, I found myself really drawing close to and falling in love with this person that was a man. And, um, and, intimately and sexually was so aligned with me 
unlike <laughs> anything I'd ever felt before. Um, and it was also very frightening because I'd started to try and open up and was, you know, hit with all of my fears and all of my places of not feeling like I was good enough or, you know, uh, yeah, open enough. Like everything in me wanted to, I'd found the person that I, I actually felt safe with and I wanted so much to open my whole being and body up. And I realized how far I was from being able to do that, how much frigidity had actually built itself into my cells unconsciously. And so even in my sexual openings, I started to feel the places where I was missing, which was in the end a, a blessing because that's where I was able to then luckily with this partner communicate, you know, and say, here's some places that I'm really feeling closed and let's, can we work through these carefully and, and had somebody who was willing to do those works with me. Um, and so that studying in Mogadau and deepening in this relationship and deepening my sensitivity, as well as my ability to approach radical honesty in my partnership, you know, all of it, you know, we say to like, as the Jing begins to refine in the body, it begins to fill and flood the heart. And as the heart is filled and flooded, it's, you're able to speak. Like it actually kind of comes out through the tongue and through the voice. And so the tongue and the voice become the outer expression of the heart, which is rooted back all the way into the kidney and the sexual chi. And so the sex comes literally out through the tip of the tongue. So my ability to speak about what I needed and speak about what I was feeling and what, you know, I was wanting to cultivate became easier. And that then made it easier to, to do those things. And then those things fed, fed back into my kidney and my sexual chi. And the cycle began to grow healthy in my body. Um, and in that process, which was the most beautiful thing, was that in my partnership, my ability to do that was able to then inspire my partner's ability to do that deeper. You know, And so both of us went through an incredible process of exploration and understanding of our own sexual you know, complexities and specificities together. And in that process, my partner was able to open up to me and speak about, um, at that time, his, you know, and now her, you know, uh, truth, her, her feeling in her body that she was not actually a man, you know. And so, of course, for me as a lesbian woman that had sort of said, okay, fine, I'll be with this man. <laughs> to have that man say, actually, I'm a woman, uh, pretty was also profound because our mutuality was able to refine each of our truths towards, you know, the reality that they are. And so this woman, you know, began to emerge with me. And, and I realized the perfection of that for me, you know, too, because in reality, I had not actually ever been truly satisfied with women or with men, ever. Like even the women that I had, it was playful, it was sweet, but I, I never stuck. I never wanted to really continue. It didn't feed something in me. And even in women, in my relationships with women, I felt I was cold and somehow closed. And so to have this trans woman emerge in my life, it fulfilled everything I could ever dream because I had this being that sexually and physically could, you know, touch me and move me in ways that a woman couldn't, you know, or, or, you know, these cis women couldn't, you know, and, but I had a woman wholly in my life that could fulfill me in the ways that cis men couldn't. 
you know, and so I realized that my particularity was that I actually am like made for this one trans woman <laughs> and like no one else, <laughs> which is, you know, also incredible, you wow. know, to find your, your person and your sexual orientation actually. Totally. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, really incredible. And, you know, I'm curious, I, I want to transition to talking about your art practice, which I know is something that you started. Did it start around that time or you're a self-taught artist? Yeah. Um, was there, yeah. Did it start around that time? Um, different ways. Okay. I've been, I'm a self-taught artist, but I've worked in almost every kind of art field most mm -hmm. of my life. So from modeling and acting, mm -hmm. I flowed pretty quickly into in school, I was doing photography and things like that. Cause I was always around photographers, you know, mm -hmm. also in the, in the modeling industry. Mm -hmm. Um, but I really loved and moved into doing photography when I was young. And then, um, and then that, in, that grew into performance art. And so in my early twenties before my kids or right around the time I got pregnant, I started doing circus arts and performance arts. Um, and I traveled the world. I, you know, went, um, traveled with a circus company do, working in Latin America doing street circus for four mm -hmm. years. Um, and so performance became a really big part of my life, circus performance. And um, and then I came in clown work and all these different kinds of amazing ways. And then I came back to the States and ended up working with a, um, a theater arts company in New Mexico. Um, and I'm still working with them. So I've been working with them for the last almost 20 years, okay. um, teaching and directing and developing, um, spectacle circus and theater work. What's the company? Uh, wise fool, New Mexico. Okay. And, um, yeah. And the Penasco theater collective is another one. Mm -hmm. Um, but so I started working with those companies and then in that process began to develop my own form of teaching as Mogadell came deeper into me. I realized that even my theater work had to shift to sort of or accommodate the width of understanding that I was having around vulnerability mm -hmm. and around performativity in general and the necessity for sort of a radical reinvention of what it meant to be a performer and what it meant to be a body on stage, you know, and I became really invested in the relationship to truth and truth telling as a performance artist, um, as the only way in that often performance artists are about, you know, kind of being complex liars, <laughs> you know, ultimately they, they create characters and beings and ways outside of themselves, you and know, politicians and politicians. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I decided in my work and in my teaching and in the work that I was doing that I wanted to reinvent that concept all the way and, and make us instead of abject liars, abject truth tellers mm -hmm. and said, you know, that the only reason people actually, I think, watch performers at all is because they're looking for seeds of deep truth because that's the only thing that actually relates. Mm -hmm. You know, people like to be fooled only so far. And then, then they get either bored or angry or disenchanted, you know? And so to, as a performer, I recognized I had a greater calling as a, as a teacher of, of truth and authenticity. So my, so my work began to incorporate that deeper as I was also studying and, and becoming a teacher in the, the Mogadal tradition mm -hmm. equally. And then in just the last couple years, two and a half years, my focus shifted sort of surprisingly to me um, 
you know, in all of that time, in all of my life, I never really even looked at or dealt with anything to do with my ancestry, my race. My I just sort of grew up sort of colorblind, my mom would always say. She tries, tried to raise us colorblind <laughs> because we had a family of seven different dads of many different races. So all of my brothers and sisters were like every color of the rainbow. You know, really, we had a whole very multiracial family. And so... Um, you know, my mom just made no deal about it, just kind of pretended we were all one, which we were, and and it never continued on in our life as being a, a thought. And I was willfully ignorant for pretty much most of my life to those conversations and just allowed myself to flow through the world, through the racism, through all the things, just as, you know, some avant-garde person outside of it, some post-racial being. Um, and that came crashing down pretty quick <laughs> as I, as I came into my late thirties. Um, I, and my children were getting older. I realized how important it was actually to stop and reckon with the realities, you know, not only for me, but for so many, for so many people as I, as I grew deeper in my understanding of social activism, it became inconscionable for me to not have done that work myself and actually looked at what it meant. And so in the process of embracing that and as an approaching deeper study into myself and my ancestry and my family histories and, you know, talking to my, my dad who I didn't really know very well, like what about our family and where we came from and so many pieces of the story started coming together and I began to get flooded with imagery. Uh, yeah. And so two and a half years ago, I began to, um, try to paint the images that were coming through my mind for the first time. I never painted anything ever in my life, <laughs> which I, these paintings are stunning for Thanks. that to be true <laughs> <laughs> for it not to be true. They, I mean, yeah. yeah, they're stunning paintings. It's really astounding. It was a big deal. And mm -hmm. that's now really changed, changed my life. I've begun to completely, you know, embrace a, a world of listening Mm -hmm. you know, to these ancestors and to, and allowing whatever form they need to come through to come through and, mm -hmm. and also astonishing myself at the different ways, you know, through sculpture, through painting, through installation, like what it's looking like, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I brought up the question again about, you know, did your art start in that time or how did it get affected? Cause you're even using that same language of listening the way that you spoke earlier about listening to our destiny and mm -hmm. listening to Jing. Mm -hmm. And of course, erotic energy and sexuality are so connected to our creative energy, right? Exactly. It's the same source. So yeah. it seems like in a way there's that refinement that you were talking about of desire comes out also in a refinement of yourself as an artist and the work that you're doing. 100%. It, I, it's a direct line. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I believe that the studies and the work that I was able to to come into through Mogadou and through, you know, and also through the, the intimate relationship that I was having with my partner at the time and the opening there, it, all of it fed this deep creative force and, and also the tools were in my body to mm -hmm. listen to better, mm -hmm. to actually become more acutely aware mm -hmm. of what was happening. And that's why I feel like in a certain way I became, I finally became trustworthy to the invisible world, mm. you know? And mm. so then the invisible world could visit me and were able to give me and let these gifts move through me. So I, I don't feel like I could have moved into any of the expression of art that I have now without the root of that, of the practice that yeah. came through in that time. Wow. Yeah, and I just want to name 
the beauty of all of this happening in your late 30s after being a mother, right? I think our society has created such a, this youth-focused um, di- um, dynamic, right? In which all of that, if you haven't figured it out in your 20s or you haven't <laughs> achieved that in your 20s or aligned with it, you know, it's too late. Mm. <laughs> and um, it's really toxic. And it's something that I, in my early 30s now, like find myself trying to unlearn and decondition um, so I just want to name that because it's, it's really beautiful and inspiring and acknowledges that what you said earlier, that our lives are about becoming more refined mm. and knowing ourselves more and being able to listen more and that necessarily that's going to take maturation. Exactly. So, yeah. So thank you for modeling that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm Exquisitely. excited. Thank you. No, it's a big deal. And I think it is true. I think it's, it's a fault of our society and mm-hmm. it is toxic to believe that the twenties are supposed to be the time where we're supposed to n- know anything really. <laughs> the twenties are barely like figuring out how to, yeah, like just walk in the totally. world, you know, and, and know who we are. And so, yeah, I feel really blessed to have come into this now in my thirties and be able to feel like I can move into, which I'm now in my forties, this, these next eras with, you know, such, yeah, both wisdom and practice. Um, you spoke or, or in your bio, you talk about ritual being such a big part of your process and you just spoke about being flooded with imagery from ancestors. Can you speak more about the role of ritual in your art making? And just more generally about your process as a visual artist now? Yeah. Again, it's, um, like I said, just a touch, this relationship with the invisible world, Mm -hmm. you know, is really essential for me. I feel that, um, and maybe also, and not even maybe, but surely it's also rooted in this Taoist understanding of, um, of Wu Wei, which is the concept of the action of non-action. Um, seem like a paradoxical understanding, you know, this place of, of acting and, and in non-action, this light holding. Um, but that for me comes out in this relationship to, to ritual. I feel like we have to sort of create a form, but then we have to let go completely and allow it to be filled. And so I use ritual as a way of, of creating a skeleton and or creating a destination for spirit or, you know, the energy or the ideas or whatever it is to come into. I, if I'm trying to make something or trying to have power over, um, or, um, even yeah, coming up with an idea and saying, I'm going to make that or do that. It will never work, you know? And, and ultimately I recognize that as a colonized and colonizing idea that I would somehow have power over anything, whatever material I'm working with or whatever concept I'm trying to develop, you know, as, as soon as I am able to take myself or that idea out of the picture, you know, and, and instead, you know, say, I'm going to make a really beautiful place, like make the bed <laughs> for the energy to come into. I'm going to do everything I can to create the, the, uh, circumstances so that what is right will flow into it. You know, that's the action. My action is to kind of create the space and, and then to step back from it. And in that process of stepping back from it, then what is, what is right will come through. And if I've done a really good job of aligning myself and that space to become, to be as receptive and as sensitive as I can to it, 
then it will really come through and, and there's a reliability and a level of trust in it. Um, and to, to spot, speak more directly on how that, what that might look like um, with my mask project, which was a project of, um, I sculpted 108 life-size ceramic masks, each one um, as, a, as a tribute and a, a honoring of these invisible ancestral voices. Um, I had a very, very strict process that I put myself through so that every single day um, in the evenings after five or six, after I'd made food for my kids and, you know, did all the things I needed to do, I would go into deep research mode and I would read every book I could, every, re listen to every, like to fiction, nonfiction, everything I could find, you know, studying my history, my own family history as well as black, you know, and African histories, um, I would inundate my mind with images. Some days I would just sit and look at hundreds of images of lynched bodies mm. and, and just soak the reality of lynching up in my body. And then I would sleep and I would let that stew in my unconscious. And then in the mornings I would go into my studio and I would remove all of my visual and audio stimulus, everything, and make it a clear and clean environment. And then I would take out a raw piece of clay and roll it out and then allow for what could come, what needed to come to come through. So I wouldn't use any models. I wouldn't use any images. I wouldn't use anything more at that point. I would just say I, I did the work. I let it stew in my body. And then I would go through this process, you know, so each clay piece also had then a way where I would, you know, with the clay, I would you know, create this story or history based on the way that I would touch it or, you know, hammer it with my hand or a fist or lay it in the sun and imagine, you know, hard cracked skin from hours in the field, or I'd whip it with a piece of leather, or I'd rub soft silk on it, all of this on a piece of clay as a human body, imagining and sort of retelling histories into it just as their form. You know, and then from that, I put them into a structure of my own head so that my bones could speak into it. All of this just being structure. I'm not actually doing any art yet. <laughs> I'm just following a, a script. All right, lay the history into the clay. Place the clay on the bones. Let the bones fill it. Let the ancestors fill it. And then look, what is there? Can I carve away at the things that are unnecessary now? Can I add the places that are missing? And six, seven hours later, I'd have one face times 108. <laughs> How long did that process take you? Uh, it was six months of straight working. In that manner? Every single day. Mm. And then, yeah, then I dipped them all in red iron as a symbol for blood mm -hmm. and then brought them into the world through fire. Beautiful. And then that led to a project that you were involved in in Ghana that had some some parallels in terms of ancestry and invoking that through sculpture? Yeah, I had a huge show and won a big competition actually with the masks and that brought a lot of attention to them. And there was an artist in Ghana who's been doing and has done a very similar process but had been working on it for many years before me and had sculpted already at that time over 2,000 heads of mm -hmm. ancestors and had installed them in the, the slave castle in the Cape Coast in Ghana. And I was so deeply moved by seeing that work. And, and he also was really expire, inspired and excited about what I was doing. 
um, and it invited me to come as a visiting artist to Ghana to continue to work on his installation. It's called the In Chim Chim installation, mm-hmm. which is a large 25-acre installation toward to African history, both um, post or pre-colonial to post-colonial African histories and into contemporary times. And so I went there for uh, six weeks this summer and worked um, as a studio visiting artist in sculpting. Wow. You spoke earlier um, about this idea of decolonizing process, which is so big in in taking away this idea that you're going to come in knowing what and controlling what you're making, Mm -hmm. which I think is huge. And, um, you know, I want to talk a little about the workshop that you gave decolonizing the body that drew from some of Mogadao practices. But um, you also had us you spoke about the five elements and how to reflect on colonization impacting our own existence and processes and all of these realms. Um, And the way that that workshop was spoken about, you spoke about decolonization as a form of accountability. What can you speak about that idea of accountability in this process? Yeah. um, I mean, accountability is, is such a huge concept in general. This, understanding of, of taking account and or being accountable, um, meaning that, that we can um, ultimately be relied upon, right? And the spirit can be relied upon. The, in, de- in colonization in particular, one of the main actions of colonization is to destabilize and to, um, to create structures that are not accountable, Actually, as a form of power, you know, when you can, when you create and develop systems of oppression and there's no accountability and there's nobody to turn to, to say, you did this, you know, you need to make this right or create balance or harmony when there's no one to turn to it, it does something deep in the soul that it creates this sense of, of, um, incapacity for any type of healing, you know, and it, and that creates ultimately a sort of entropic reality in the cells of the body and in the mind. And that creates then a sense of weakness and vulnerability, which then is easy to be uh, uh, manipulated and continue to be continue to be manipulated. So entire communities, I mean, our entire world has been subjected to this colonization without accountability. Mm. So in that workshop, you spoke about um, the original intelligence of the organ systems. And I'm thinking about the Nietzsche quote that says, there's more wisdom in your body than in your deepest philosophy. So talk a little about body intelligence and how that can be a route or part of our process of decolonization. Um, as like with the foundational understanding, you know, that I talked about before around Jing, when we really get that, in our body and we recognize that all of the fluids of our body, which are constantly with us all the time, are communicating to us about our most essential truth and harmony. That like our fluids are working with us <laughs> to try and get us to a place of, of deep um, joy, ultimately. Um, when that is the foundation, then we begin to really understand how important it is for us to be aware of our body right? To be aware of the blood flowing through and the health of the body, the, the actual way that we tend to the body, because the clearer the body is, the more 
functioning the body is in certain ways of, you know, of actual fundamental health. Like when we're not beating ourselves up, you know, and, you know, and doing things that are, are dulling and numbing and, you know, both basically disregarding the body. Um, when we, when we really begin to move into our healthy body, our body speaks to us clearer. It does. Our, our sweat begins to smell particular ways and we can tell when it's healthy and when it's not, we can tell when we had those, that crazy, you know, junk food, or we had that really bad relationship or whatever was going on. Like we can tell. And, and so the, the process of refining the body through the Jing, through the, and again, non-moralistically, it's not saying, you know, you can't do this certain, these certain drugs or this certain thing or this kind of food or whatever. There's, it's really about our own personal ways of, of finding clarity. Mm. You know, some medicines people take are really important for them to actually get more in touch with the sensitivity in their body. When we can do that, when we get in really finding that bodily intelligence through listening, through deep listening, then the body begins to speak. And, and when that happens, and the body is speaking and our, all of our organ systems are able to tell us what's going on with them, that in and of itself, just, just listening to your body is a form of decolonizing in, because colonization is in its nature about not listening. It's about overtaking, overpowering, you know, and decimating sensitivity. And so becoming sensitive is a form of decolonization. Deep listening is a form of decolonization. As the organs begin to speak to us, then, then we begin to have a real relationship. <laughs> We're not just controlling the body. We're not just this person that is telling the organs what to do. All of a sudden the organs start telling us what they need. You know? And in that nourishing of a relationship, just like relationships that we have with people in the external world, when we can actually listen to each other, look at each other in the eyes and, and hear what somebody's saying, you know, or be able to speak clearly what we need or want, then that, that type of relationship that we can develop becomes reliable. We can count on it. It can say, all right, I trust you. I trust you're telling me the truth. And so we create these relationships with our organs, our organs. And I can say, all right, I trust my heart is telling me the truth. I trust my stomach is telling me the truth. My stomach can trust me and that I'm not going to continue to hurt it. My heart can trust me. And so you, you actually build relationships with every single organ system like a, like a being. And it's unique, just as unique as every single relationship that we have out in the outside world. And that creates a foundational accountability in the body. Right? And... And that from that place of being accountable in that way, in a really honest way to ourselves, then we can be accountable to others. Yeah, and it takes, it takes a certain humility as well, right? There's that, again, of taking yourself out of the hubris of control, controlling the body, controlling your art, and it not being product oriented as well, yeah. you know, that it's very process oriented. And I think that's really challenging for artists today because when, when it's caught up, like livelihood is very caught up with purpose. Right. And so it's such a, for myself and a very frequent pitfall of just 
like, what will this become? What will this be? Like, where will this take me in terms mm -hmm. of a career? And it really takes accountability and resilience and, um, you know, reckoning and humility to get out of that thought process and really show up for the work in a, in a service mentality. Yes, it is a service mentality. Mm -hmm. And that's the foundation is like when we really move into this place of service, ultimately to, yeah, to the process, it's stronger. And that's the thing I've found as an artist and as I've witnessed now and I'm witnessing artists and the artists that are really successful in my eyes, you know, or in certain eyes, I'm like, wow, they really got it. The only reason they have it is because they're doing exactly like what they feel. They're mm -hmm. listening deeper and they're not caring about the productivity or the commercial, you know, mm -hmm. value or they're really working in, in a layer of, of trusting trusting their vision and just doing it without this product mentality. And, and it's hard. That's the hardest thing. Mm -hmm. But the fact is, is that the ones that do that are the most successful. Mm. It's a, it's a lie of colonization and commercialization mm -hmm. and, and all of it commodification. It's, it's a lie that it's about the product, mm -hmm. you know, and because the more people who make it about the product, the weaker they are. Because then they're, all of their value structures outside of them. And if people stop liking that product, then they're lost, you know? And when you're trying to figure out what, to, what am I supposed to do now? You know, this is no longer selling, right. you know, that's, you'll be chasing constantly outside of yourself, you know? So the only way towards success in anything that we're doing is by allowing it to come deeply from the inside and trusting it and, you know, and it is the hardest thing you can do, but it should be. Being an artist should be really hard. Mm -hmm. Being a person should be really hard, <laughs> you know, until it's not, you know, until, until we begin to build that trust and then it becomes easy. Mm -hmm. And then we go, okay, actually, because we begin to see it folding back on ourselves. We see that every time we're more, we're authentic with somebody, the stronger that relationship is. Every time we really speak our heart or really show our truth or really just go for it when we don't know what's going to happen, the benefit and the, the outcome is always better. It's always stronger and often more long, longer lasting. Yeah. Trust and trust and surrender that, which is really what we're talking about requires so much bravery. Yeah. How do you, what, what would be your counsel? How do you strengthen those muscles? Um, in little ways. Mm always like you strength just like any muscle you know you work it out a little bit all the time you know and so we have we have opportunities for trusting and surrendering every single day every day we wake up we have an opportunity to trust or surrender something more you know the way that we you know see our body for the first time in the mirror in the morning and the way that our mind moves towards judgment or not, you know, or the way that we, the choices that we make in the way that we're going to communicate with somebody that day, or when we get angry and upset about something and we stop ourselves and take a breath or think about it differently or communicate about it in a clearer, you know, way that these are all opportunities to strengthen that muscle, you know, and we do them in little micro ways. And then the macro ways become easier. Well, it's been really 
really incredible to talk to you about all of these ideas and their intersection. I'm really grateful for the conversation. There's so many gems in it. Mm. I'd love to end by asking you if you or when you are on your deathbed at this point in your life, what would be the sexcapade that comes to mind and makes you smile? <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I don't. The sexcapade. <laughs> or just any experience of eroticism or sexuality or spirit or. Um. That is so hard. (laughs) Um, You know, and ultimately, and I'll say why, you know, because, you know, again, the, I mean, that's a beautiful question, you know, because it's, it's asking for like this furthest place that I would want to go or that we could go in our lives or what we would want, you know, in the end. And, and, but it, you know, it pushes me towards this thought of, of like the final product in a way. Right. And, and I don't have one in my mind. I'm like, I don't, there's not one thing or one way or, or something that I would want to, to do necessarily. I feel like if, you know, I knew I was dying, you know, and I was on my deathbed, you know, I would, God, I mean, I would want to somehow like lay down and have like every, every lover and friend Mm -hmm. and person that I've ever touched in the world to just come and like, you know, I don't know, somehow touch me back or to, you know, I'd love to share, like share some piece of that with them again. Like I'd love somehow to, to be caressed by every single one of them Mm -hmm. one last time and, and have that, that place of, I mean, that seems kind of funny too, but there's something around like recapitulating Mm -hmm. and really finding the depth of gratitude Mm -hmm. for all of those moments, Mm -hmm. you know, for all of the incredibly beautiful moments of sexual surrender and, and love and, and joy and, and, you know, overflowing, you know, beingness that I've had. I'd want to have a moment to, to live them all again and, and be able to feel in those moments, total gratefulness and total gratitude, Mm -hmm. you know, so, so my biggest sexcapade would be to relive every sexual experience I've had and have the ability to sink into deep gratitude for it Mm -hmm. and deep presence in it. Well, I love your reframing of the question because it's a memory question versus a forward thinking. Like what to date has been your greatest or your like, what's the story that you're sitting around as a 90 year old woman being like, oh, I remember that time. Uh-huh. But and you took it in this other direction of like, what would you want it to be? And I think you such a beautiful way to think about it and a beautiful answer that you gave. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. So thank you so much. And what's what's coming up for you and where can people learn more and just follow your work? Um, uh, 2020 hopefully will be a really great big year. I'm going to be teaching my workshop, Decolonizing the Body, in a few different places, um, both in New Mexico as well as um, in LA in the summer. And um, 
you know, there'll be a few places that, and more, and if anyone's interested in wanting me to teach, they can, they can contact me through my website or my Instagram, um, all and Facebook, all of them, my name, Nikesha Breeze. Um, I'm and we'll also, link to all of that. Yeah. You can page. link to all of that. And, um, and then also in 2020 in November, which is kind of exciting. It's the election month, which we're all holding <laughs> our breath for. Um, but in that month, um, and then for three months or four months after, I'm going to have my first huge uh, solo show. So a full gallery, ground floor um, solo show of my artwork, which will include sculpture, paintings, uh, performance, and site-specific installation, um, all based around the relationship to wound mm. and, um, and the process of deep regenerative healing. Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for all of the amazing insights that you've shared and for speaking so vulnerably about your experience and um, for the work that you're doing in the world. Thanks. <laughs> for more information about Nikesha, to see her incredible art, and to learn more about Strippers and Sages, please visit strippersandsages.com. There you'll be able to sign up for our mailing list, access special resources, and become a Patreon supporter, which would be very sexy of you. I'll also be posting written reflections on each episode, so look out for those. And please join our discussion group on Facebook. I'll let you know about upcoming events, workshops, and erotic immersions. And if this podcast resonates with you, the best way that you can show your support, in addition to pledging on Patreon, is to like us on iTunes and Spotify, and to share these episodes with your friends and your sister and your mom hey she needs to know about this stuff too okay help her get her eros on special thanks to ben euphrat for scoring and mixing these episodes and to lilia tam and john wolfstone for their production support stay sexy kids